We're back in Habakkuk today, finishing up the last chapter of this little book. Back in the 1830s, there was a former naval captain named Alan Gardner who was uh, born again, and God put a burden on his heart for the mission field. In the 1830s, he sailed from Britain to South Africa and did mission work there for a long time. And in 1851, he and six other men sailed from there all the way down to the, the southernmost tip of South America to begin a mission work there. It was a very um, remote, rough, rugged place. And just before arriving, they encountered a violent storm, and he and the others on board barely made it to a small island. They tried to set up there the best they could, and the plan had already been put in place for a supply ship to follow them soon afterwards to bring much-needed supplies and food. And so they waited week after week, scanning the horizon, and that supply ship never came. The men knew they were in trouble. They rationed their food the best that they could, eating only tiny amounts every day, trying to make it last as long as possible. But the weeks passed, and the months passed, and the food ran out, and one by one, those men died of starvation. Alan Gardner was the last to die. We know this because he made daily journal entries, and his journal was found lying beside his body when that supply ship finally did show up several weeks after uh, the last date in his journal entry. And when they found his journal and began leafing through it and reading the accounts of the final weeks of these men's lives, this is what he wrote on his last day alive. And I put this on the screen so you could see it. He wrote these words. Ah, I am happy day and night, hour by hour. Let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond all expression the night I wrote these lines and would not have changed situations with any man living. I am ready, should it be his will, to languish and die here, knowing that whatever he shall appoint shall be well. Whether I live or die, may it be in him. Those words sound so foreign to us in our modern, fast-paced, give me everything now culture. How is it possible for a person to know that kind of peace and joy in the midst of such dire circumstances? How is that possible? What was it that kept him from writing, why me, God? I mean, after all, I'm the one out here doing your work, and this is how you repay me? Could we have blamed him if he felt that way? Well, for the last two weeks, we've been looking at the prophet Habakkuk. And we see a man who loved God, but when trouble came, when the heat was turned up to a certain point, we find that even Habakkuk cracked. He, he could not handle the situation any longer. And the truth is, I think that as, we, as we've made our way through this book, we can probably identify with him maybe a little more closely than we would care to admit. In chapter 1, we saw Habakkuk questioning and complaining. He said, God, I've been preaching and preaching your word. I've been faithful to you, and the people refuse to listen. They're living in sin, God. Your people are living in sin, and they're getting away with it. God, when are you going to do something about it? That was chapter 1. The nation he was in, had, they were supposed to be God's people. They had completely turned away from God. They'd become corrupt and violent. And Habakkuk simply could not find joy and peace as long as things were in that condition. 
his circumstances were dictating his peace or lack of. And so he brought his frustrations to God. And as I said, I probably cannot honestly fault him or blame him for anything he said, although he does come very, very close to crossing the line with God. And he recognizes that in chapter 2. He realized that he had spoken out of turn, and so he took the wise position of going from questioning and complaining in chapter 1 to waiting and listening in chapter 2. And we looked at that last week. He, he said, I'm going to climb up in the watchtower, and I'm going to look for God and wait for him to come and answer me and correct me if necessary. And God did respond. Boy, did he ever. God took almost the entirety of chapter 2 to simply describe his power and the judgment that was about to fall upon his people. And God said, Habakkuk, I am at work behind the scenes, even though you can't see me, and the way I'm going to work this out is I'm raising up a pagan nation, the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, it says in some translations, which, by the way, is where Abraham was born and raised. If you go back to Genesis 11 and 12, you'll find it says uh, Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees. So it goes all the way back to, to those days. And God said, I'm raising up this, this nation, uh, and they are going to come and destroy the land of Judah. They're going to destroy Jerusalem, and they're going to take the people into captivity. Well, uh, needless to say, that answer was not the answer Habakkuk was hoping for. And hearing this filled him with fear. And for the first time now, we see Habakkuk where he really needs to be. Because this fear put him on his knees before God. And so he's gone now from questioning and complaining in chapter 1 to waiting and listening in chapter 2, and now we finally see him praying and worshiping in chapter 3. Let's look at these verses together briefly this morning. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on Shiganoth. Um, we don't know what that word means. I think Shiganoth is the plural of Shiga. I, I don't know that, but <laughs> as far as you know, that's true. What we do know is it's some kind of musical term, Chapter 3 is actually a song that Habakkuk writes. It's a psalm uh, meant to be set to music. You can see that in the very last sentence of this chapter. He tells the choir master to sort of get the orchestra and, and play this um, as a worship song to the Lord. And so this is some kind of note to the choir master, the music master, uh, to, to get his shiganoth on and get ready to <laughs> sing this song. It is odd. We don't, we don't know what that word means completely. Verse 2. He says, Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid or in awe. I'm going to pause there for just a moment. Habakkuk now has heard what God is going to do. You know, sometimes when you complain to God, sometimes when you challenge him and say, God, uh, I don't see you at work here in this situation. What are you doing Sometimes we will get an answer that we wish we, hadn't, we, we hadn't gone looking for. And Habakkuk now hears that God is, in fact, at work. He's not asleep on the job. He sees the evil in the land. And he's raising up this nation to come and obliterate his people. Habakkuk is rightfully scared to death. And he goes on describing this, actually, in verse 16. Let's jump down there for just a second. So he puts this interlude in, in verses 3 to 15, but he comes back to this in verse 16. He said, when I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Decay or rottenness entered my bones, and my legs trembled. Habakkuk gets his answer from God, but boy, it leaves him shaking in his shoes. He said, Lord, I've heard you. I know all about your mighty deeds. 
and I know what you can do, and it's left me terrified. And this causes Habakkuk to do what he should have done in the first place. Rather than questioning and complaining, and it's okay to bring our questions to God, but rather than spending chapter 1 questioning and complaining and almost accusing God of not caring, not being involved, he now comes to the place where he should have been all along. He's now terrified at the news he's heard, and let's finish reading verse 2 and see uh, this, this new outlook he has. Back at 3, 2, the second part of that, he says, O oh Lord, in view of this thing that is scaring me to death, Lord, revive your work in the midst of our years. In the midst of our time, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In, in essence, he seems to be saying, Lord, in retrospect, how silly of me to suggest that you're to blame for all this mess down here in the world and that you need to come down and fix it. How silly of me. When the reality is, Lord, we're the ones who created this mess and you're waiting on us to repent before you so that you can bring revival. And that's still the case today, folks, isn't it? It's still the case today. How often do you hear people say, and maybe I hear it more often because I'm a pastor, how often do you hear people say, what kind of God would allow such evil in the world? Really? This is God's fault? No, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you'll see whose fault it is. God created things in their right, proper order and gave very simple instructions to mankind to follow. Very simple instructions. You may eat of every tree in the garden except this one. How generous is that of God? He didn't have a list of rules. He didn't have a list of legalistic regulations that the people had to follow to the T. He said simply, all of this is yours. I've given all of this to you because I love you. All I'm asking is this one thing, you avoid that. And they said, great, we're going to go do that one thing. And because of that, you read in the remainder of Genesis 3, the curse that came upon the earth that we're still groaning under today. And so Habakkuk goes now from saying, God, do you not see this mess down here? Are you not going to do anything about it? To realizing, oh boy, this is our problem. This is our sin. All the, the, the evil and corruption and violence that we see in this land is a result of our turning away from you, Lord. And he says, the first thing I want to pray for, Lord, and he only asks for two things in this whole chapter. One is revival. Revival. You know, I don't want to nitpick on this, but maybe it's worth mentioning. I think the word revival among churches has lost its actual meaning. Churches say we're having a revival to bring the lost to Christ, and that's all well and good. But that's not what the word revive means. Vive from the word viva means life. Re means to do again. So the word revive literally means to live again, to bring life to that which once had life but now doesn't. It's not talking about the lost when we talk about revival. Let's not try to escape what revival actually is. It's for the church to get on their knees and say, God, we've lost our first love. We need to be re-lifed. We need to be revived. And this is what Habakkuk is saying here. He doesn't say, God, bring revival to the wicked. He's saying, God, your people need revival. We need to be revived. He doesn't pray for a better economy. He doesn't pray for a stronger military. 
He doesn't pray for social reform or better welfare programs. He pinpoints the one prayer that any nation in trouble needs to pray. Lord, revive your people. Revive your church. Folks, there are so many things that need to be restored in our nation today. And we could point fingers all day long. And, and believe me, I bite my tongue up here many Sundays to not get off in left field in that issue. But the thing America needs, first and foremost, above everything else, is for the church to wake up. For the church to rise from its slumber, to confess its sin of complacency and compromise, and call upon God for forgiveness and renewal. That's the prayer we need to be praying as the church. For us to say, God, please save the lost. Yes, a worthy prayer, a prayer we should pray. But that is so often an easy out for us. Because we're deflecting the, pro the real problem in our nation and saying it's their fault. It's not their fault. Lost people are lost. That's what they do. They're sinners, as we all were before we were saved by the grace of God. God is not waiting for lost people to be saved to turn a nation around. Scripture is clear on this. He says, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. My people, if my people. Habakkuk prays that he would see revival in these times, in his day, in his lifetime. And then he says, Lord, what a beautiful second request this is. Lord, even in your wrath, remember mercy. And you know, again, it's a, I think it's a, a fault of us as human beings to, to say that either God must be a God of wrath or a God of mercy. He can't be both. That's nonsense, folks. You as a parent love your children. More than anything in the world, you would give your life for them. And yet, do you not correct them and discipline them when they go astray? Because you love them. You are a person of wrath and mercy. The only difference is, even in our best moments when we discipline our children, we are sinners disciplining sinners. When God's wrath comes, when his judgment comes, it is righteous wrath and judgment. Notice Habakkuk now has changed his tune so much from chapter 1. He didn't ask God to spare them from the coming trouble. He asked God to be merciful to them in the coming trouble. He said, God, I know your wrath is coming. You've explained it very clearly at the end of chapter 1 and all through chapter 2. I understand we have sinned. We've turned away from you, and there's a price to pay. I understand that your wrath is coming, and it's going to be vicious. God, I pray that you would revive your people and I pray, God, that when your just wrath comes upon us, that you would be merciful to us in your wrath. We so often want to separate the two. We want to say, um, God, if you love me, you would spare us from any kind of judgment, any kind of discipline and correction. Again, the Bible speaks the exact opposite and promises us the exact opposite. It says that the Lord disciplines those he loves. It says, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Treat it as a friend when it comes. Uh, Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks on this. I, I wanted to just show this quickly. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. 
were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no. He says, no, that's not what we're looking for. He says, no, in all these things, in all this trouble, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, I think Romans 8.37 is a verse we hear all the time as Christians. And I think we tend to focus only on the more than conquerors part. People get all whipped up and excited about that. We're more than conquerors. Yes, but you're forgetting the most important word in that verse. We're not more than conquerors because we're spared from the trouble in life. We're more than conquerors in the trouble, in the persecution, in the problems and the suffering. That's when we discover that through Christ, we can be more than conquerors in the trials. Not because trouble never comes our way, but in the trouble. That's when we really see and need God's mercy and his faithfulness. That's what Habakkuk's saying. Lord, I know that your judgment is coming, and I know that it's right. But Lord, if you are not merciful to us when your judgment comes, we'll never make it through. David prayed this when he sinned. He basically said, God, I would rather... I would rather fall into your hands of discipline than to be disciplined by men. Because I know that your discipline, your correction, though it's severe, it's right. And he trusted God more than he ever trusted men. It's his mercies that we need in these times. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. We haven't gotten there yet, but Jeremiah wrote this book. We're actually in the middle of Jeremiah. And we've stepped out to look at Habakkuk because that's, this is when Habakkuk came on the scene. But we will soon be in Lamentations. Chapter 3, verse 22 says this, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. It is because of his mercies that you and I have not been turned to dust. His mercy. His mercy. It's not because you did more good things today than you did yesterday. You're not going to get on God's good books because you didn't skip a service all month. It's because of his mercy that we're still here. And Habakkuk needs to know for sure that God is going to be merciful to him and to, his, to God's people during this upcoming judgment because he understands full well now what's about to happen. He didn't in chapter 1, but he does now. And in this section that I mentioned in verses 3 through 15, we, we're not going to take time to read all of this. <clears throat> you can pursue that on your own. But he paints this picture of God's power and God's judgment. Now, it's interesting, as you go through Scripture, when people question God, um, God rarely gives them direct answers to their question. What he often does, as he did with Job, when Job said, you know, Lord, where are you? I, I look in front of me, I look behind me, I look to my right, I look to my left, I don't see you, God. Where are you in all my trouble? God didn't give him an explanation. God simply took chapter after chapter to say, Job, sit down for just a moment. I want you to remember who I am. I want you to remember how powerful I am. And he begins to question Job. Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And Job goes, gulp. Where were you when I stretched out the heavens like a scroll? Job, do you know where light comes from? Job, do you know where darkness abides? Job, do you know where the storehouses of snow and hail are? Job, were you the one who told the oceans you may come this far and no further? And on and on and on God goes. Never answering Job's question, simply reminding Job of his power and omnipotence and sovereignty over everything. And by the way, that more than answered Job's question. Because it gave him the proper perspective on his troubles. And at the end of all that, Job said, Surely I've spoken of things I did not understand. 
He said, I will put my hand over my mouth and I will repent in dust and ashes. You see, it's, it's this perspective that we lose so often that we need to be reminded of. And that's what Habakkuk is about to do in verses 3 through 15. He's not answering, he's not solving any problems. He's simply giving himself a reminder of the proper perspective of who God is and who he is in comparison. Just a quick sampling of these verses. He says in verse 3, he talks about God's glory covering the heavens. In verse 4, I don't know if you've ever seen this verse in the Bible, he talks about rays that flashed from God's hands. Kind of reminds you of superhero stuff, doesn't it? Rays that flashed from God's hands. Research that one sometime. Verse 5, he said, before him went pestilence. Verse 6, he looked and startled the nations. The mountains were scattered. The hills bowed down. Verse 7, the land trembled before him. Verse 10, the mountains saw you and trembled. Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still at the light of your arrows. Verse 12, you trampled the nations. Verse 13, you struck the head from the house of the wicked. Verse 14, you thrust them through with their own arrows. Verse 15, you walked through the sea with your horses. I mean, what a picture of the scale of God, the scope of God's greatness and power compared to our little tiny earth down here. It's no wonder Habakkuk was scared to death in verse 16. But I didn't finish reading verse 16 a moment ago. He said, Lord, all this talk of your coming and judgment has drained the life out of me. I'm scared to death. But that's not all he said. Let's look at the rest of verse 16 now. He said, when I heard, my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, decay entered my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet, he says, yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. He says, God, I know things are about to get bad, but I'm confident that your mercy will sustain us, and in the end, everything will be all right. Habakkuk has gone now from trusting and hoping that all the trouble will go away to trusting that God will keep him through the trouble. He, he says at the end of verse 16, in essence, Lord, I know we're going to be judged, but I also know that you're a righteous God, and at the end, you're going to judge those who've come against us, even though God sent them. And so he takes courage in that. He takes confidence. He finds rest in that. And folks, that's where so many Christians get stuck. They get stuck right here in life. They keep expecting God to take away their trouble instead of walking with them through the trouble. And so when trouble comes, they become disillusioned, or they become angry, or disappointed with God. You know how many books have been written about this? Where is God when it hurts? Disappointment with God. Why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, the list goes on and on, because this is an issue that humans wrestle with. We feel like if we've put our faith in God, if we've trusted in him for salvation and eternal life, then surely between now and then, he's going to keep us free from all trouble in this life. Folks, I want to tell you, a, a view like that of the Christian life will leave you disappointed and bitter at best. Your life will be like a roller coaster. You'll be in a great worship service one day, and you'll be up at the top. Isn't God good? You walk into work the next morning, and the boss says, I'm sorry, i got to let you go. And you say, God, where are you? Why would you allow this to happen? I was literally in church yesterday praising you. Where are you, God? You see, we've missed, we've missed so much of the practical instruction in God's word. 
Jesus said this in John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. And then he said, in the world you will have, many translations say trouble, the real word is tribulation. Look that word up. He's not saying you're going to have little light bumps in the road. Jesus is promising his followers, I'm telling you now, guys, in this world, you will have tribulation. But he says, but be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Why? Because you got to keep a stiff upper lip and just tough your way through? No. Be of good cheer. Why? For I have overcome the world. Habakkuk is being reminded of this, and the more he puts his trust in God, the deeper and stronger his trust becomes. This is so beautiful to see this sort of unfold here in this last chapter of this little book. There are only three verses left now in this chapter, and these are some jaw-dropping verses. Look at what he says next in verses 17 and 18, some of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. Look at how much his faith and trust in God has grown since the complaints in chapter 1. Verse 17, although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be on the vines, though the produce of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no food, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls, yet, there it is again, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. This is the same man complaining in chapter 1. Now, we read this and go, well, uh, big deal. So the, they don't have any figs. Uh, the fruit or the, the grapes uh, on the vines, you know, they, they didn't come through so good this year. The, the olives didn't grow well. There's no food coming from the fields. Well, big deal. We'll just go to the grocery store and buy some more. That's us. See, we think we're so smart, we've always got a backup plan when trouble comes. What we need to understand is this was an agricultural society. Grain and sheep and cattle, the fruit of the vine, was their life. It was their industry. And what he's describing here is not a little hiccup in their plans. He's describing total economic collapse to the point where no one would have food to eat and ultimately everyone would starve to death. That's the picture he's painting in verses 17 and 18. And yet he says, even if that comes, I still have room to rejoice in the Lord. He's gone now from, God, why aren't you fixing this mess? To even if God should let us all die, I'm still going to rejoice in him. How in the world did his view change so drastically in chapter 3, even though the problems hadn't changed at all from chapter 1? They were all still there. The people were still rebellious. Wickedness was still rampant in the land. Nothing had changed in his circumstances. But Habakkuk had changed inside. <clears throat> in chapter 1, his joy and his peace were dependent on his circumstances. But by chapter 3, notice he said, I will joy in God. I will find my joy in God. Folks, it's, it's when you and I realize that our joy, our fulfillment, our security in this life will never, ever come from the things of this world. You'll never find true security and peace and joy and rest in a relationship, in a pursuit in possessions, in pleasure, in power, 
You'll never find it in the things of this world. Oh, they'll satisfy you for a moment. I mean, the Bible talks about enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. There's pleasure to be found. But it always leaves you empty when you wake up. And it's, when, it's, it's not until you and I realize that our joy in this life, the fulfillment that we're longing for, the security that we crave, will never be found in anything in this world. That it's only in him that we can find true joy, true peace, and true rest. Um, can, I, can I sort of intrude into your personal life for just a minute? Do we understand, I realize we get busy with life and making our plans and all that's good, but do we understand how quickly verse 17 could be true of America? Oh, we don't worry about olives and figs and things like that, but we've got our own things that we take for granted here. We've come to depend on. We assume they'll always be here. Do we understand? Do we really understand how quickly verse 17 could happen in America? Have you really been paying attention to just how close our leaders have taken us to the very precipice of destruction? Yes, we need to pray for our leaders, but I'm telling you, I'm just telling you straight up, the leadership we have in our country now is depraved and demented and demonic. It's evil. When you have leaders in your land praising and promoting the mutilation of young boys and girls, I don't know if you ever looked up photos of that. Maybe you shouldn't. But all the stuff there, you know, the president praising sex change for children as young as eight years old. If you ever see photographs of that surgery, it will haunt you the rest of your life. It's destroying people's lives. This is demonic, what's happening. Men in our government showing up to work every day in a dress and lipstick. These are leaders in our country now, and we just go about our life saying, well, I'm sure it'll all work out. How's it working out so far? Not too good. We see what's happening with the economy, with the banking system, with our international relations. Systematically, Things in the world are being shut down. The Nord Stream pipeline, blown up on purpose to cut off oil to Europe. The war in Ukraine, I told you this months and months and months ago, do not fall for what you hear on the media about Ukraine. The people in Ukraine is not who I'm talking about, it's the government. They are one of the most corrupt governments in the world. And yet our foolish leaders have now given them close to $200 billion. And I told you months ago, if all of this comes out behind the scenes of the Bidens, it's going to shock the world. And it's starting to come out. All the money laundering taking place through Ukraine. Listen, our government is evil and corrupt to the core. Do we understand how quickly Habakkuk 3.17 could be true of this country? See, I've lived in other countries where this same process has been unfolded. We have friends here from South Africa. Talk to them anytime you want to. Ask them if what I'm saying is true. When we were there, my father worked, uh, wrote a, a book about communism in South Africa released some information that had never been released before. We began getting death threats when this book came out. And he warned the South Africans again and again and again, 
Socialism is coming. It's going to destroy this beautiful land. They said, not a chance. We're too patriotic. It will never happen here. I have many friends in South Africa right now. They will tell you South Africa has turned into a hellhole. The government is now supporting the murder of farmers so that their land can be given to other people. Go online sometime and look at the monument that has been built for all the farmers who have been murdered in South Africa. They built these probably eight or ten foot wooden crosses and put one on either side of the road for every farmer that has been killed by these socialist dictators. And there's a helicopter shot showing you as far as the eye can see crosses on both sides of the road for miles. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them have been murdered. Their land has been taken from them because of socialism, the joys of socialism. And the same steps that I watched as a boy slowly unfold in that country are now unfolding here. I'm not trying to be a doomsdayer. I'm just telling you, folks, you can write this date down, write down what I said, I will sign it, and I'm telling you, it is going to happen here. God is not going to spare America. I'm sorry. He's not. And I can tell by some of your faces that you're shocked to hear that. Because, you know, after all, America is God's favorite nation, isn't it? I'm truly not trying to be a, a doomsdayer. I'm trying to get us ready. I'm trying to make sure that we are prepared spiritually for what could come. God's not going to spare America because no wicked nation in the history of the world has ever been spared until they repent. And I don't see any signs of that. I don't. We're an arrogant people. We're a complacent people. We fall into line immediately when the government says, do anything. Well, I guess we have to do this. All of these things, I told you back in April and May of 2020, I said, pay attention to what's happening. There's more going on than a virus. I told you that in May of 2020. I said, all of these things being rolled out are intentional steps to slowly take our freedoms away. And it's coming true. Oh, Phil, you're a nut job. Until 2021 came, and 2022, and 2023, and we see the things that are being put in place to try and control the population and take our freedoms. I know it might sound crazy now, but you mark my words. And so what happens? What happens if everything is taken away from us? What happens if the economy collapses? How many more banks can default? before we're in real trouble? How much more evil can be brought into our culture before we totally go under? So what happens if everything is taken away? If that happens in your lifetime, where will your faith be? What is your faith anchored in now? Are you finding your peace and joy in your freedom that you have now? That can be gone like that. Are you finding your security in your bank account, in your job, in your relationships? None of those things are secure. We thank God for all of them. They're all blessings. But none of those things are guaranteed. None of them are secure. Are you ready for the day? Are you preparing spiritually for the day that may come to this country where everything is taken away? We are uh, following too closely the patterns of some other countries in the world. Did you know, by the way, that now there are 
700 million facial recognition cameras in China, operational right now. 700 million. Everywhere those people go, they're monitored. Everywhere. They're on a social credit system. There's documentaries on this. You can go look. The Chinese will show you their phone. Yes, this is the app we all have to have. It monitors everything we do. If we ride a bike to work, instead of taking the bus, then we get extra points, and we have extra points that we can buy food. If they catch us smoking, it takes away points, and we don't have any money left to buy food. They're completely controlled by the government. And that's what they want to bring here. Oh, it's not going to happen next week. It's not going to happen next month. It's not going to happen next year. But this is where it's going. Our freedoms are being taken away. Habakkuk lived in a time when the people were much like us. They had all the religion they could stand. They had all the freedoms they wanted. They were living in luxury. We saw this in some of the earlier prophetic books we went through. And they never saw their slow slide into the abyss until God's judgment came. And Habakkuk is watching all this as a godly man. He's trying to preach against it, and he reaches the point where he nearly fell apart because the world around him was falling apart. It wasn't until he put his trust back in God that he found the peace and the strength he so desperately needed. Look at the last verse quickly. Verse 19, the Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on high hills. Habakkuk has been reminded that his joy, his strength comes from the Lord, not from his circumstances, and now he says that when this trouble comes, that God is going to enable him to move safely through all the rough and rocky places that he's about to go through. When he says he'll make my feet like, like the deer's feet, the hind's feet, um, deers are amazing animals. The, God has given them the ability, and many goats as well, this bizarre ability to run and jump over the most rough and rugged and treacherous mountain terrain that any of us would stumble and fall on. They've got the ability to scale near vertical rock faces and never slip. Here's a quick photo. Look at this guy. Does that make your palms sweaty a little bit? I mean, I want to yell, get, get down from there. What's wrong with you? Look at this next picture here. I mean, these animals are remarkable. This is what Habakkuk is talking about. This is what the psalmist talks about when he says, he will make my feet like the deer's feet. Habakkuk says, because my trust is now in God and not in my circumstances, he will give me stability when everyone around me is slipping and falling. He will keep my feet secure even when the world underneath me is shaking. What a great picture. And not only will God make him sure-footed in his trials, but he says God is also going to take him to the mountaintops. It's a picture of victory. It's a picture of triumph. So here's the thing, and I close with this. It's important to see none of Habakkuk's circumstances had improved. Not one. His whole world was still in a mess, but Habakkuk, his heart had been transformed. He took his eyes off his surroundings, and he put his eyes on God. Isn't that what the disciples did in the boat at night with Jesus in the middle of the sea when a great storm arose and the waves beat against the boat and they thought they were going to drown? They looked, and there was Jesus asleep at the back of the boat. They went and woke him up and said, Lord, do you not care that we perish? Jesus stood and rebuked the winds and the waves, said, Peace, be still, and the Bible says, and the wind stopped, and there was a great calm. And he turned to them, and he said, why are you so afraid? How is it that you have no faith? And they said to one another, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him.
And what we discover as we study the life of Christ is that the reason he could remain so calm, the reason he could remain so centered and secure, even when life around him was falling apart, is because he completely trusted in his father's goodness and faithfulness. Completely trusted his life into his father's hands. Are we able to say the same thing? What are you trusting in this morning? Is your joy based on your circumstances? Or do you find your joy in the Lord? I pray that no matter what the days ahead may bring, that we would keep our trust in him alone. And that like Habakkuk, we could go from questioning and complaining to praying and worshiping. Father, we thank you for this little glimpse into this part of your word. I pray, Lord, you would... I pray you would plant it deep in our hearts. Lord, surely we've seen by now, surely we've seen that we cannot trust the things of this world. Lord, as your people, as those who've committed our lives to you, we need to be living in such a way that our focus is not on... um, finding our trust and our joy and our security and our peace in the fact that things are good right now. I pray, Lord, we would begin today to turn our eyes to you, begin today to make sure that our trust is anchored in you alone, not in anything else that could change so quickly. Thank you, Lord, that you have promised to never change. Thank you that you've promised to never leave us or forsake us. May we put our trust completely in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, You can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart, I want to see.